It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On today's New Statesman podcast... Alva and I are joined by the SDLP MP for Belfast South, Claire Hanna, to discuss the life and legacy of John Hume. We've just had the news that John Hume, the Nobel laureate and a former leader of the SDLP, has died at the age of 83. So we thought we would do something a little bit different for this podcast to celebrate his life and his legacy. So we're really pleased to be joined by Claire Hanna, who is the SDLP MP for South Belfast, literally just down the road from me at the moment. Claire, thank you very much for coming on to the New Statesman podcast. Thanks for having me. So just to begin, I kind of almost don't know where to start in summarising quite how significant John Hume was. And he was described by Bill Clinton as the Martin Luther King of, of the Ireland conflict or like, and tributes have been pouring in for him today and the role that he played in paving the way for the Good Friday Agreement and the peace settlement that we have here. How would you go about trying to capture what his legacy means? Yeah, you, you, I mean, you're, you're right in all the hours of broadcast we'll have today and for the rest of the week. It would be very difficult to capture the influence he had and I suppose where he took uh, the political discourse in Northern Ireland and, and, and the island as a whole and, and where he brought it because simply he, he recast the thinking about uh, you know, the Irish question that nobody had managed to successfully address for, for literally centuries and he created the frameworks probably in the early 70s that we now know as the Good Friday Agreement in terms of you know boiling it down to relationships and, and the relationships between communities in Northern Ireland and the relationships between the North and South of Ireland and the relationships between Ireland and Britain. And really, he kind of came up with that in the 70s and spent the next kind of long, lonely decades, slowly but surely, uh, bringing everybody else onto that ground and doing it really actually from a position of no great leadership. Certainly, he was a constituency MP and then later a member of the European Parliament. And obviously, he was party leader, but he wasn't first minister. We didn't have structures in that regard, but he managed to kind of bring everybody with him from, from ground level to world leaders. And he managed to influence Irish policy, UK policy 
policy presidents in, in the US and, and the European Union and, and focus them around his solutions. It's interesting that you begin in, in your first answer by talking about how he reframed how we thought about Northern Irish politics in terms of relations within Northern Ireland, but also between the North and South of Ireland and between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. That was really one of the big tenets of his thinking and one of these big ideas that is now very familiar. And it's basically the framework through which we have peace in Northern Ireland, but it wasn't so familiar at the time. So my dad jokes about how John Hume had the single transferable speech. (laughs) And that he really like, he emphasized those three different relationships and how crucial they would be to achieving peace here. And really just like drilled home the same point over and over again until people came to accept it. And now, you know, in recent years, we've seen people like the DUP's Jeffrey Donaldson, for example, another, you know, one of your MP colleagues in Westminster, talking about about those three pillars and and how important they are as a a sort of apparatus for peace that everyone accepts now. Yeah, I mean, exactly, because people had people were coming to it from different perspectives, obviously Irish nationalists, and he was an Irish nationalist and a leader and probably the leader over the decades and centuries of Irish nationalism, always thought of it as as an internal Irish problem, and I suppose most crudely boiled down to Brits out. But he he correctly showed people that a million of our neighbours are British and are absolutely allowed to identify in that way, and therefore that that approach was completely inappropriate. He showed the UK that an internal settlement from their perspective that would be just dealing with things within Northern Ireland wasn't sufficient. And, And as I say, he used quite simply the power of his intellect and the power of his persuasion to get the US and the EU to to bring their influence to bear. But he did it all the while. I mean, it's worth saying before he was a kind of a a Nobel laureate and global statesman. He he was just a practical person. I mean, his, his first political activity, he set up the credit union in Ireland. And he did that literally with a few quid in his pocket in the early 60s because he he made the link between, yes, the systemic discrimination and and the political discrimination and inequality that was endured in Northern Ireland. But he didn't immediately go to the, I suppose, locating it in this is nationalists and this is Catholics being discriminated against. He just focused on the practical situation that people were were in. And and he did the same with the civil rights conflict. There were others who, who wanted to bring it back to the green and orange and so on. And he was just resolutely practical. He focused on, you know, the inadequate provision of housing and the link uh, between that and gerrymandering. Because, of course, at the time, the city he lived in, in Derry, was very, the vast majority was Catholics. But due to systemic political discrimination, they had almost no power. So he, he, he ensured that the civil rights movement focused on those things. And he knew when to bring people out on the streets and how to bring them out and how to galvanized protest but he also crucially knew when to come off the streets and was very good at just seeing how to put people into positions of power and influence on the city councils and then creating structures like the early assembly and just realized that the kind of the rhetoric and the language and the galvanizing wasn't enough he needed to have people in positions where they could actually change outcomes and then I suppose throughout his life he 
he just led people away from the base responses that had always characterized politics here, you know, that people had always gone to the trenches and viewed absolutely everything through the prism of green and orange. And I suppose in the in the 70s and 80s, when there was just unimaginable horror all around him and nearly every other political leader, and I use the word advisedly, was just playing to those base instincts and allowing the evil to just to just roll on year after year and and to think about that everybody else was thinking in militaristic terms and in in a way he was empathetic before it became you know the in thing and he cried with victims and he always located what he was seeing in you know how victims were experiencing it and did everything he could do as he always said to just save one life and in the end he saved many many thousands but unfortunately he had come up with the solution in the early 70s and it took the IRA and it took unionism and it took the political apparatus of the UK another 25 years to catch up. I'm glad that you that you provided that kind of summary there because I'm aware that our listeners and, and new statesmen readers will be coming at this from very different experiences that for older people and people who have followed Northern Irish politics in any great way for decades, they'll be well familiar with, with John Hume, but other people who've maybe been less engaged with it or, or indeed younger people, including, you know, younger people from, from here and like my own peers, will probably have less of a detailed sense of the role that he played. So yeah, as, as you say, the the way he began from that cohort of better educated Catholics who were coming through the education system in Northern Ireland for the first time, benefiting from changes in education legislation from Westminster. Suddenly you had this cohort of engaged, educated middle-class Catholics who were more prepared to make a case against unionism, which wasn't really new, but also to make that case for greater participation in in the apparatus of the state and to you know and then to make those arguments as you were saying in favor of peace and a a more complex and outward looking picture of possible solutions in the north and then you know he made that that case for peace throughout the decades and then i suppose it's just worth explaining for people who, who are less familiar with him in technical terms it was the way he engaged with leading republican jerry adams that that really laid the the groundwork for peace here yeah, so I actually I did mean to start at the start, but of course I'm I'm somebody who's just grown up immersed immersed in him, and I find in all the stalemates here when you when you hit them, if you go back, John, you've always had an answer there somewhere. It's like he had <laughs> um, he had predicted every scenario, but but yes, and just to contextualise it, you know, obviously the the, the the political forces at the time of his political awakening, and and you're right to say he was one of that generation of of Catholics and nationalists who benefited from access. To, to grammar schools with the 11 plus ironically it was a tool for for kind of social mobility then but nationalism and unionism were really all there was and, and he, he was a social democrat he was very clear that you know when he set up the SDLP he deliberately didn't locate it you know he didn't call it the nationalist party or the republican party even though it did have you know an explicitly pro-Irish unity policy and it did very largely represent Catholics and nationalists that's just the community it, it came out of but he was always determined not to use those trigger concepts for everything and he was always very clear that the battle wasn't between Protestants and Catholics you know that these were political structures and indeed 
that working class Protestants were, were also discriminated against in the same way. But yeah, you're right. He realized he realized in the 80s, in the early 80s, that republicanism and the IRA had to be had to be brought along. At that time, the IRA and 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 the British were essentially in a no, no score draw. You know, they both realized that they couldn't defeat the other militarily, but neither of them were breaking the cycle. Uh, and he realized that too, and knew that it would drag on for many years if 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 somebody didn't stop them externally. And yes, he he secretly engaged in negotiations with Jerry Adams, and and and, and I suppose sold his concepts to Jerry Adams, who, who then in turn began to sell them to the IRA, basically that that you weren't going to blow them away, that the British people who live here have every right to be and are, are part of the Irish family if they if they want to be. And he did that under enormous pressure because obviously the IRA were still, you know, very much involved in their active campaign and and, and were pariahs. And, and a lot of people, including within his own party, including within the SDLP, were appalled at that dialogue. And I know I have the self-awareness to know that had I been politically of age then, I would have opposed what he was doing. And I now know that what he was doing was right, but it would have been very difficult to take. But yes, he, he essentially brought the Republican movement Movement, the IRA and Sinn Féin into the political process and for the next 15 years kind of kept them in it and at many points you know after particular atrocities when 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 many others said no that's that's too much we, we have to move on without them I think he kind of realized that without convincing that strand of physical force republicanism without bringing them along that threat would exist throughout the generations he he, he kind of knew that the poison has to have to be pushed out of the system at that point. And he did that right the way through to the late 90s. And even after the Good Friday Agreement was signed, when, for example, the IRA wouldn't decommission and many people felt that Sinn Féin shouldn't be, shouldn't be kind of kept in the political process while they kept a standing army, you know, he, he ensured that they were brought in. And in doing so, he probably sacrificed the political party that he'd, that he'd built from the ground. But he knew that really it was about saving lives and it was about creating a lasting settlement rather than necessarily you know building his own political movement it's so interesting that you talk about how if you'd been sort of politically aware at that time how you would have found it controversial and 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 you would have opposed it yourself. I wonder what your first memories are of him. You know, you, you said earlier that you were sort of immersed in his politics and his story, but what's your earliest memory of him and, and how do you remember him shaping you? As Presumably you were a teenager in the late stages of the peace talks. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, my, my father was general secretary of the SDLP in the 80s whenever I was, you know, kind of under 10 and had been involved in the civil rights movement and, and my mum went on to be an elected politician in the late 90s. So he would have been, I suppose, a family friend. My dad essentially worked for him and, and uh, wrote for him for, for many years. So I knew him being in and out of the house, being, I was aware even then, kind of a, a, a deep thinker while, and, and people are, are right to say he he enjoyed a joke, he enjoyed a drink, he loved he loved to sing, he loved to tell stories, but he was a bit of a loner as well. I think he, he, he wore his duties very, very heavily. And I actually remember him as a very, as a serious person rather than a kind of a backslappy type politician. But I suppose just 
I grew up just with it very much embedded in our household and we grew up in a very mixed neighborhood in a, in a very bleak Northern Ireland that difference is the essence of humanity that it was and it's an accident of birth whether you 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 were born into a nationalist or a unionist household or, or community and that the common ground was was so vast between us and, and that's I suppose always been my political philosophy since that while we have different views of, of you know our constitutional future everything else is in common our, our you know our, our, our public services and all of those things and he he always brought things back to the practical and the economic he said many times that you can't eat a flag and that the best peace process is a job and I just I, I suppose yeah I remember him in, in just being around just another maybe one of my mom and dad's colleagues that would be in and out of the house and that we'd sometimes have to drive to far fun places and and deliver leaflets for but I remember him as a serious person but I suppose it's his concepts that would always have been just embedded in the in the, in the family and yeah it was it was about just the common ground and 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 the lack of uh willingness to operate in the common ground that that abounded in in the politics of other parties and other people If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You and the, the current SDLP leader, Colm Eastwood, are both now Westminster MPs since the 2019 general election, kind of ending the, the DUP are still the dominant political party from Northern Ireland in Westminster terms. But after 2017, it was only DUP MPs and the independent MP for North Down, Sylvia Herman, as she was the only one making a sort of pro-Remain case. And then in 2019, you and Colm Eastwood, along with an alliance politician, Stephen Farry, came over to Westminster. And what we saw with, particularly less so in South Belfast, but with Colm Eastwood's seat, which is John Hume's seat historically, this, the seat of foil for Westminster, we kind of saw that like one of the main fault lines for Irish nationalism, basically, is the question of how much you should be participating in Westminster. Colm Eastwood's main opponent would be a Sinn Féin politician who would have an abstentionist position. And so I wanted to ask you about this because it was one of John Hume's big ideas, you know, from like throughout the 60s, he, he and some, some peers were arguing that there was a need for greater Catholic participation in UK institutions. And he himself, of course, was an MP. And you took your seat. And you did something sort of interesting when you had to make the oath to the Queen. And I just was wondering if you could tell listeners a bit about that and about if John Hume in particular shapes your thinking on that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fair to say, Kelly, she's thinking on so many things, but the, the going and taking your seat and, and, and representing comes back to the, that fundamental point about using the levers available to you, using them all, using, you know, from the parish council right up to, to, to Westminster and, and, and Brussels and so on, and, and being practical and the quality of your argument going over and, I suppose, informing people. And that's something he did throughout his life. You know, he kind of, you know, went toe to toe with the biggest politicians in the world and just you know set them straight on their on their perspectives but yeah yes i said whenever whenever i was elected i mean you know the the oath of allegiance to the queen it's it's fair to say and i don't mean it disrespectfully i don't have a particular attachment to the queen i suspect even if by the accident of birth i'd grown up in britain i probably wouldn't have a particular attachment either although i you know i totally respect the fact that she's an important figure to, to many people including many of my constituents and many of my uh, my voters so so i suppose I, I i said the words in the formulation that i'm required to say but i made very clear that my allegiance was to the people of south belfast in in all of their diversity and that my political i suppose my political lodestar was the good friday agreement and he's right about kind of the participation of of, of irish voices in british institutions for, for two reasons one that regardless of what happens constitutionally we will always be next door neighbours you know tens and hundreds of thousands of Irish people will live in Britain and Britain British people will live in, in in Ireland and long may that continue and secondly because I mean and certainly this is relevant now I'm a social democrat those views you know cross the Irish Sea I I, I feel the same way about the lot of you know a British person in, in, a, in a British town as I do about an Irish person in an Irish town so I suppose he was an internationalist as well he 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 was very involved in the in the establishment and in the hierarchy of the Party of European Socialists. I mean, he, he very much believed in the European ideal. As an aside, from day one, he saw the value of the European Union in terms of the, you know, the practical and the economic benefits that it could bring and did bring to Northern Ireland. But also he studied and he saw very much the history of post-Second World War European Union and, and the countries that had come through challenges very similar to our own and who had found ways to find unity and diversity and he spoke very very often about standing on the bridge in Strasbourg and and thinking how how amazing it was that just decades before you know those two countries had been had been very much at war so yeah he was an internationalist and he he believed in using absolutely every platform available to him and and yes that 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 shaped my politics and also his his respectful way of dealing with people as I say you can always kind of rally the troops and and stir the hearts and gird, stir the loins of people by making base comments that appeal to base nationalism or base unionism. But he treated everybody with respect. And, you know, it was a characteristic of his politics that he always thought about how unionism would perceive this, how British politicians would perceive this, how Americans would perceive this. He was very good at, you know, imagining how other people were taking his political views. And that's, you know, for, for anybody, whether they're for somebody in my position, he, he really is the model for, for, for political leadership in that regard, for showing what's possible and, and, and for, for being hopeful, even in very, very dark times. You described his journey to the European Parliament, Westminster and Stormont, and you you yourself have, have made that journey from one parliament to another. And I wonder what has struck you as the biggest differences with the way Westminster works and, and what has that contrast taught you about devolution? 
It's a good question. I mean, of course, Dormant deliberately and actually because of people like Hume doesn't have kind of quite the same pomp and they were they were determined that that it, that, it, that it wouldn't. That I suppose because we would, as we say here, people would lose their run of themselves, you know, so they thought there's no honorific, for example, there's no, you know, your honor this or, you know, I put it to you that it doesn't have quite the same you know all the procedural stuff albeit it's in an historic building stormant that you know has a, has a has a history of its own i mean you could you could go into i'm sure i'm sure Hume would have had plenty to say about subsidiarity and, and bringing the decisions closest to the i suppose it's just it is underlined the the, the connectedness of it of, of it all that while we have devolution while we're we're absolutely not using it to, to to great effect and that's something that frustrates me greatly that we're not using the structures and the kind of lessons that he fought tooth and nail to embed and we're not using for example the north-south structures that that he like died in a ditch over in the negotiations but just ab about the the interlinked nature of it all and that really like some sort of you know one of those looping puzzles if you don't have those three sets of relationships working and moving and if you don't have buy-in from you know both the communities in Northern Ireland and both British and Irish governments, if they're not all keeping their eye on the ball and broadly moving in the same place, then you're not going anywhere. And and I suppose the other thing, and I think it's it's wonderful that he was somebody who was so committed to the European ideal, and he he won't have been aware of this because I don't think it's any secret. He's been in very poor health for 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 a very long time, but he essentially protected us from the worst worst of Brexit by creating the Good Friday Agreement and a kind of a toolkit to get us out of a hard Brexit. You know, if he hadn't come up with that, not only would we not have had, you know, the opportunities of devolution, we, we, we wouldn't have been able to prevent a hard Brexit, I don't believe either. It's funny that you say that, Claire, because I suppose just the, the Chinese whispers of, of Northern Irish society, I had heard through the grapevine, as you say, um, John Hume had been ill with dementia for quite a while, but I'd heard that someone did actually tell him about us voting to, to leave the EU and, and he was horrified. And he did bring that kind of pro-European approach and an internationalist approach to everything that he did, including we've spoken about his ideas and um, him being a, a deep thinker and those ideas coming to permeate Northern Irish politics and the way we do business here and, and indeed like shaping a lot of the structures here with the Good Friday Agreement. But even I was just thinking about the way he was a, a very good, he did some very smart political maneuvers. Like for example, the way he made a point of engaging prominent Irish Americans at the height of the troubles and securing buy-in from them, particularly Ted Kennedy, sort of encouraging them to denounce IRA violence as a quite important moment. And so I just thought it was interesting you talking about the different ways in which his ideas influence you. And I was wondering, are there any aspects of Hume's ideas or his behaviour that you particularly come back to now that you know you're an SDLP MP at Westminster and representing along with Colin Eastwood like representing SDLP's vision on on a UK-wide stage? Yeah, I mean, you say that your dad jokes about, you know, the single transferable speech and and, and everybody does and it's a kind of a, a gentle thing. But actually, right up until, and it's been probably a year since I've seen John Hume, I mean, I'm pretty sure he could still stand up and give that speech. So uh, he, he has had <laughs> flashes of lucidity and, and at conferences until very, very recently, you know, he would still be up 
leading the sing song and so on, you know, he, and I suppose people of Derry and, and further afield have, have looked out for him and, and he would be out and about and he would be maybe out for a walk or a pint and, and he would chat with people and he, 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 he you know, he was aware of, 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 of some things, but just just literally so many I kind of my team would take the mic out of me that I could barely get through any any speech without a Hume reference but just all of those all of those lessons about working the common ground about the commonality between us about that root lesson that you can't eat a flag that nationalism and unionism won't put bread on anybody's table and that on their own they actually do nothing to solve the practical issues that affect people's lives and that's true right up to the present day when still we obsess and we talk about the kind of mechanisms of like well when are we doing a border poll and how are we doing it uh, and we talk about the means rather than the ends of, of you know what what you could actually do to improve people's lives and I suppose he just has so much to say about understanding and providing space for your opponents as well as for those who agree with you and another thing he said repeatedly that if you ask for all or nothing you'll you'll usually end up with nothing you know he, he was very good at at, at selling the value of compromise compromise on outcomes but 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 never on your principles and I think that's in all of the things that people from from across the political spectrum were saying about him today it was about his integrity he while he would understand where people were coming from he would never pander to people he would never for example have given any sucker to violence on, on either side and why he would he would go a long way to try and understand you know what was motivating people and what was in their heads when he did that and to try and translate it for other people he would never give it cover but just as I say, just a blueprint, a blueprint for, for leading beyond your authority. And as I said at the start, I mean, he didn't really have much status beyond being a constituency MP, but he just, through his force of personality and through just visionary leadership, through just, you know, taking time to think, now, how are we going to get out of this one? He just, I don't know, solved problems. And, and like I say, whatever, wherever you're coming from, I can't think of anybody better to, to, to model your politics on. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleague Alva Ray. Our producer is Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons.